The Apostle John is now over 90 years old. He's the last living apostle that's still on the earth in these days. He's been walking with Jesus probably close to or more than 80 years at the time that he writes this letter. He was there at the very beginning of the public ministry of Jesus, and he has now lived into the third generation of the church from the time when it first began. He has seen the glory of its beginning. He has seen the shifts and the transformation that has taken place in time and the way that the Spirit of God has governed and directed. And now towards the end of his life, he takes in hand to write to the church concerning some issues that he sees and some things that he would have preserved and recorded for us that we might be aware of the pitfalls and dangers that would come to the church in all ages. And so John is seeking in his letter here to define and also defend and also declare to us exactly what it means to be in Christian fellowship or to be in Christ. It's what he calls in chapter 1 the fellowship that we have with the Father and with his Son and that consequentially then we have one with another, that we're in fellowship together and our fellowship is with him. And so John is seeking to clarify in very certain terms what it means to be in fellowship with God. And then what that looks like in our fellowship with one another. And his purpose for doing this is twofold. Number one is to protect the vulnerable. That is, those that are um, vulnerable or capable of being deceived or brought down a wrong path or shifted by degrees away from the truth of the gospel. So to protect the vulnerable, but then also to expose the self-deceived. That is, those that believe that they are in fellowship with God, but in fact they have fallen prey to some false gospel or some false belief system that ultimately cannot save them. And so John seeks to define very clearly what is a Christian and what isn't a Christian so that we might not be deceived. And if we are deceived, that we might come back into a realization of what the truth is. Now, he began in chapter 1 on this theme of walking in the light. And he has taken the time to define for us and to develop for us this concept and theme of walking in the light with God. And he said that God is light and that in him is no darkness at all. And so therefore, because God is light and there's no darkness in him, if we say that we walk with him, but yet we walk in darkness then we're lying and we're not in the truth. And so light, according to John, according to the Bible, light is intellectual understanding in the context of truth versus error, truth being light and error being darkness. And light is also moral, wherein righteousness is light and evil is darkness. And what John is saying is that if we walk in the truth, that God has laid down of what it means to walk with him, then we're walking in the light. But if we walk in error, in other words, we push away God's truth and we kind of make God in our own image and define truth the way we want to define truth, then we're walking in darkness. And that's disqualifying. We're not walking with him. 
If we're walking in righteousness the way that God has defined righteousness, then we're walking in the light. But if there's compromise in our lives and we're walking in sin and justifying that sin based upon what we think is right and what is wrong, then John says that we're walking in darkness. And so John is taking black and white and he's taking the narrow path and he's setting the borders and he's saying this is what it means to walk with God. Now where we left off at the end of chapter 1, John is in the middle of giving to us six statements that begin with the phrase, if we say, or if anyone says that they, and then he fills in the blank. And and he's doing that in order to define very clearly what it means to walk in truth. And so three of those statements has already passed. He said, if we say that we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, then we're lying and we're not in the truth. Now, in contrast to that, he then says, but if we walk in the light... Then we have fellowship with God and with each other, and the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all sin. The second statement, chapter 1, he says in verse 8, that if we say we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So anyone who claims that they're sinlessly perfect or that they've arrived at a state of righteousness... (laughs) that is on par somewhere with what Jesus demonstrated, then that person is lying. That until we step into glory, because we're in in, in our fallen bodies and we're in a fallen world, there's always going to be a sin struggle. There's always going to be something that God is wrestling out of our lives or changing out of our lives. And for us to say that that's not the case, then we're denying his word. And, And John says that we're not in the truth. But... Contrasting to that, he says, but if we confess our sins, then he's faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us. And so the way that we find freedom and victory over sin in our lives continually is that as God exposes to us the flaws that that exist within us, we confess those flaws and then he is faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us, to set us free. And then the third statement is in verse 10 of chapter 1 where he says, if we say that we have not sinned, then we make him a liar. Because the Bible says that All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so therefore, if we say that we are without sin and that we don't need a savior to die for us, then he then it's not that we're lying. We're making him a liar. And that's much worse (laughs) to say that God is a liar in some way. And so so far, three out of the six statements, we'll see the other three in chapter two. And so we begin in chapter two, verse one, as we continue uh, now John writing. And he says this same theme. He says, my little children, these things write I unto you that you sin not. Now, in chapter 1, verse 4, John told us that he wrote these things to us so that our joy might be full. So the highest intent behind John telling us these things is that he wants us to experience the full capacity of joy that God made man and woman to be able to experience. He wants us to know that type of joy. Now, underneath that purpose, now as we come to chapter 2, verse 1, he adds on to that purpose that he writes these things that we sin not. Now, there's a relationship between our level of joy and the presence of sin within our lives. 
And it works on a contrary scale. That is, that if there's joy, then there is the absence of sin. That we're walking in the light. That we're confessing our sins. That as he's exposing it, we're repenting of it. And, 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 and there's going to be a joy that rises up in us as we walk in the light and we walk in the confession and the removal of sin. But if we're compromised and we're allowing sin or we're walking in rebellion to God in some way, then the level of our joy is going to reflect that and there's going to be a heaviness within our lives and an absence of the joy of the Lord and we're not going to be experiencing joy in the way that Jesus desires and that the Father desires that we would have it in our fellowship with Him. Here's the bottom line. Sin breaks fellowship with God. When we sin, we don't lose our salvation because God knows that we're going to sin. We see that all throughout the Bible. God doesn't hang our salvation over our heads and say that if you mess up or screw up or even if you deliberately sin, that I'm going to take my salvation away from you. But what absolutely does happen when we sin or compromise is that our fellowship with God is interrupted and broken. The life of God that's supposed to flow through us as we abide in him in a life of obedience is interrupted when the presence of sin happens. I remember as a young believer reading a a biography of Watchman Nee. And he's quoted as one time in a group of his uh, uh, parishioners, he took a tiny little grape leaf and he put it right in front of his face. And he said, do you all see how small this little grape leaf is? He said, I want you to think about how small and puny this leaf is when you put it next to something as large as the sun. Just think about the the contrast between the size of those two things. He said, but yet if I take this puny little grape leaf that has absolutely almost no substance at all and I put it in just the right place in front of my eye, he says, I can block out the entire size of the sun in all of its majesty and glory. And that's what sin is in the life of a Christian. Here we have access to the Son of God. We have access to the glory of fellowship with Him, to have the life of God and the joy of the Lord flowing through our lives. But when we allow sin to come into our lives, it breaks fellowship with God. And until that sin is removed, our fellowship with God can't be what God wants it to be. And so sin breaks our fellowship with God, and that is the the thing that bothers God the most about sin in our lives is that it keeps us from a relationship with him. But there's a few other things that sin does when we allow it in our lives. When we give ourselves to sin and we say, I'm going to go down this road and I don't care what God says. The first thing that happens be on the other side of the broken fellowship with God is that that sin immediately begins to take control of our lives. We think that we can control it. But there's not a human being that has ever lived that's been strong enough or capable of controlling the sin that they've allowed into their lives. If you have any question on that, just ask Samson, the strongest man that ever lived, anointed by the Spirit of God, a great purpose for his life, and yet he was overcome by sin in his life. And sin will always take control of us. And when we think we're taking it where we want to go, we soon find that it is taking us where it wants to go. And it's not so easy to separate from it once that begins to happen. Another thing that sin does almost simultaneously when we allow it into our lives, it's very crafty, is that it blinds us 
concerning its presence in us. We become blind even to the fact that we're walking in sin. We begin to deceive ourselves into thinking that that sin isn't really there. It's kind of like Lyme disease, that wretched satanic thing. You know, if you live in Dutchess County, you understand it. Gets in and it hides there. And sometimes you don't even know it's present, even though you've got it. You're infected with it. And sin does that. It gets in and it puts blinders over our eyes so that we don't really even know that it's there. And it makes us blind to its presence, and then it makes us blind to our condition. And here's what that looks like. Our joy has diminished, our connection to God has diminished, and we're not even aware of it. We continue going on in our life as though that hasn't happened. And sin has power to do that within our lives. And then the third thing that sin does when we allow it into our lives is it begins to harden our hearts. Remember Matthew chapter 13, the parable of the four soils? And Jesus talked about the wayside, the rocks, the thorns, and the good ground. And all were sown with seed, but each bore forth a different crop depending on the soil. You might be a person here tonight that has excellent soil. The seed of God's word can germinate, take root, grow, and bear good fruit in your life. But if you allow sin into that same heart, the the ground immediately begins to parch and harden. And pretty soon the soil becomes rock-like and the root can't go deep. And the things of God become foreign and strange and they begin quickly to die off. And as the heart grows hard, the conviction of the Holy Spirit becomes less effective. And so God seeks to get your attention and say, hey, wake up, come back. This is a bad path that you're going down. But because the heart is hard, Conviction can't be felt, and a person is apt to continue down that path that's going to lead them to destruction. When a heart becomes hard, we also become unsensitive towards other people in our lives. We become so self-consumed that we don't care what's going on in anybody else's life. We're only concerned about what we want and the outcomes and, and the experiences or whatever we're going to get from what we're doing, and we become careless and apathetic concerning how it affects anyone else in our life, even if that person is a spouse or our children or people that are close to us. And so sin is extremely detrimental in the life of any person. And John says, I write these things unto you that you sin not. I've been walking with the Lord for 80 years and I've seen it all. And I know what sin does in the life of a believer. And if you can avert that path, you would do well. Now, John goes on to say in giving us hope, he says that if any man sin, he says that we have, first of all, an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, the word advocate literally means a defense attorney. And this is the only time that Jesus is referred to in this context in the Bible, that he is our defense attorney before the Father. And this presents an amazing picture of what takes place in the courtroom of heaven as it concerns you and I and the guilt of our sin before a holy God. The Bible says in Revelation chapter 12, verses 10 and 11, that Satan, the devil, that he is the accuser of the brethren. And so what that means is that in this divine courtroom, you have a prosecuting attorney, and it is none other than the devil himself. And he's the one that brings the accusation. He says the people's court of hell would like to bring 
And then he sets your name before the judge, before this court, and then he lays forth the accusation. He says, I've been observing their life. They first started prayerless and wordless, and then they started with small compromise, and that compromise became gross sin, and I've got them on these things. And according to the law of heaven and earth, they cannot be changed. The penalty for those things is that they be handed into my control and my dominion. And that ultimately I have the right and authority over their life to bring them into bondage and ultimately to bring them unto death. According to your very word, as he points the finger at God who's on the throne. And then Satan rests his case and the Bible says that Jesus as the advocate stands up in our defense. And he says, Father, I would like to see that accusation. The father says, you may approach. And so he goes over and the son of God takes that paper, the charge, the accusation out of the hand of the devil. And he looks at the charge and he looks at the name and then he looks up at his father upon the bench and he says, father, all of these things are true. That person is absolutely guilty as charged of every one of these things. However, they belong to me. They've put their trust and their faith in me for their righteousness and for their salvation. And the sentence that this sin deserves, the penalty of bondage, separation, and death, was absorbed and paid for already by me on the cross of Calvary because this person is included in me. And therefore, this sentence is paid in full, and I move this court to dismiss that charge. And the Father says, is that so? And down comes the gavel, and he declares our innocence according to his grace, not according to our righteousness or our behavior. That's grace. That's the new covenant. Not that we deserved it or earned it, and not that we are not guilty, but that Jesus Christ paid the price for our sin. Now, how is he able to do that? John goes on to say in verse 2 that not only is he the advocate, that is Jesus Christ the righteous, the one who paid the price, but that he is also the propitiation for our sins. In other words, the propitiation means that he is the satisfying payment that satisfies the justice of God concerning our salvation. And catch that word, it's very important. It satisfies the justice of God. God can faithfully pardon and forgive our sins Because we're in Christ and because he paid the price for our sins through his righteousness and then ultimately through his death. Now, it doesn't necessarily handle the separation of fellowship that was caused by our sin or by the other outcomes that our sin has brought forth in our life. We're declared righteous and we can be in a right standing with God. But the only way for fellowship to be restored and for the effects of sin to go away is if we bring our sin in confession to God with repentance. Back to 1 John 1, 9, right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So in the courtroom of heaven, the justice of God is satisfied in the person and work of Christ. But on earth, in our experience, through our confession of our sin, fellowship is restored with God and we're brought back into a right standing with himself. The past two Saturday mornings as we've been studying the life of David, we've taken a long look at David's 
fall, when he sinned with Bathsheba, that dark moment in his life. And David persisted for a year and a half or somewhere there around in a sinful condition where he was out of fellowship with God. He describes what that's like in Psalm 31 and again in, or no, Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. And he describes the conviction, the heavy hand of God, the the drought of soul, and just the, the, the affliction that he was in internally and externally in that season of his life when he was out of fellowship with God because of his sin. And when Nathan the prophet finally confronts David because of his sin, and he gives him this story and he traps David in his own sentencing, And he looks at David and he says, David, you're guilty. You're the man that has done this thing that has stolen and taken another man. And you did that after God did all these things for you. And David, now God is going to do these things in your life as a consequence of that sin. Because you gave great occasion for the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13. Mark it. David says to Nathan the prophet, after being confronted, he says... I have sinned against the Lord. That's confession and repentance. And notice that God doesn't even let the next verse come. God doesn't even let another breath be taken before Nathan replies to David's repentance by saying, and God has also put away your sin. You shall not die. Anybody ever seen one of those buttons from staples you hit it it says that was easy remember that you you remember that was easy yeah david you wasted a year and a half trying to cover over a sin that if on the first day you felt the conviction of the spirit of god had you uttered the words i have sinned that in the same breath god would have uttered i have also put away your sin and restore you into fellowship with myself That's how confession and repentance works. We confess to God. Now, understand, what did David say? He said, I have sinned against the Lord. That's hard to say. It's much easier to say, Lord, I yelled at my wife. Now, that is a form of confession, isn't it? But you can say, but... I yelled at my wife because, and now it's not a confession anymore. Now it's justification of it. But to look at God in the light of what we've been doing, and to look at him and say, God, I have sinned against you in this thing that I have done, and that there's no justification for it whatsoever. That is confession of sin. And God meets that confession with immediate forgiveness because of the person of Christ. And so sin is forgiven in him because he is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also, he says, for the sins of the whole world. When Jesus died on the cross, every sin of every man, woman, and child that has ever been committed was put upon him and he suffered the wrath that every one of those sins will deserve and incur. Now, when a person receives Jesus Christ, that payment is then appropriated and applied to their life and to their account. But if a person doesn't put their faith in Jesus Christ, and they think that they can approach God on the basis of their own righteousness, then they remain in the guilt of their own sins. Now, when they stand before a holy God one day, having rejected Christ, God is not going to say, 
Why did you lie? Why did you cheat? Why did you steal? Why did you covet? Why did you break the Sabbath? Why did you not honor your parents? He's not going to do any of that. He's simply going to say, what did you do with my son? What did you do with Jesus Christ? Because he was the only way and his name was the only name under heaven given among men whereby we might be saved. And he is the only propitiation that will satisfy your need for salvation and keep you from the wrath of God and from eternal separation from me. So what did you do with my son? And if a person says, well, I didn't know or I didn't believe or I didn't care or I didn't think or those Christians were hypocrites or the church was a sham then the father is not going to say anything. He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. You bear the weight of your own sin penalty. So unnecessary. All paid for in the person of my son. He died for the sin of the whole world. But it isn't until a person confesses Christ as their savior and trusts in him for their forgiveness that the price then is applied to their account so that they can then be saved. And for a person not to do that is to disqualify themselves from the only means of salvation that God has provided. He died for all sin. And that means that whatever you've done here, sitting here tonight, sinner, and we're all sinners, we all need Jesus Christ. That you can bring that to God, and with faith in his name, he will forgive every sin that you've ever committed, and he will write your name in the book of life. But to refuse that is to refuse heaven. He says, and hereby then, verse 3, do we know that we know him. And here's how we know that we know him. Sometimes we wonder if we know him, right? Here's how you can know. He says, if we keep his commandments. He that says, I know him. Here's the fourth time now that John says we make a claim that we know him. He that says, I know him and keeps not his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoso keeps his word in him, verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. Now, when we take the concept of sin, sin has basically three ways that it can apply to our lives. It can apply in actions, things that we do. It can apply in a state of being that is something that we are. I am a sinner right? And it can apply to our nature. That is what we are by nature. And so we use that word sin for actions, the state of being, and the very nature of our humanity, of our human being. And, and the reason why we are sinners and that we sin is because we have a sinful nature. That's where it begins. We're born into this world in sin, and therefore we are sinners. That's why we sin. Now, righteousness applies the same thing three ways. There are acts of righteousness, things that we do that are right. Those are actions. And there is also a state of righteousness. That is, I'm declared righteous because of what God has done for me in Christ. I am in a righteous standing before God. That's a position. And then number three, there is a nature of righteousness, just like there is a sinful nature. Now, when we're born the first time, we have a sinful nature, and therefore we're in a sinful state, and therefore we sin in our actions. When we're born again in Jesus Christ, 
and his Holy Spirit comes into our life, at that point and not before it, we're given a new nature. The nature of Christ by the person of the Holy Spirit is birthed within our hearts. And a new nature now takes residency inside of us. And that new nature, as it grows, well, it brings with it a righteous standing before God. Because his spirit is in us, we're right before God. We're right with God. That's why we have peace with God. But that's going to work itself out in that we're going to want righteousness for our lives. There's going to be righteous action because of the fact that we are righteous and God lives inside of us. Now, here's the problem and where it gets tricky is that the presence of Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit in our lives, giving us a righteous nature and righteous standing and righteous actions, it doesn't automatically remove the old sinful nature from us. We still live in fallen bodies and we live in a fallen world. And therefore, we have two natures that coexist inside of us even right now if we belong to Christ. Now, Romans chapter 6, we don't have time to go there, but I would encourage you to write that down and read it later because Paul describes this in a very clear and technical sense. And what he says is this. He's saying that you and I, we have the choice whether or not we're going to yield ourselves as slaves to the new righteous nature that's in us or if we're going to yield ourselves to the old sinful nature that we came out of. And you think about the words that Paul uses there. He says that we can either be servants of sin, or we can be servants of righteousness. What's a servant? A servant is a slave, right? So a slave to sin means that I'm yielding myself to be obedient to the sinful nature. No, I don't want to be free from that sin. No, 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 no. You can be free from it. And you're called to be free from it. The choice is yours. Do you want to yield to the Spirit of God and to righteousness? Or do you want to yield to sin? Now, when a person is born again, we become slaves of righteousness. I know what that feels like. I remember early on in my Christian life. When I would sin, there was something pulling me away from that sin. Oh, God, I don't want to live this way anymore. I'm sick of that. I know what that's going to do if I continue down that path. God, help me to get over this. I want to be free from it. Do you know what that is? That's being a slave to righteousness. Here's what John is saying right here. He's saying, listen, hereby we know that we are the children of God because we keep his commands. That is, we have become slaves to righteousness because of the person of the Holy Spirit that's within our lives. If we say that we have fellowship with him, but we continue living according to the old pattern in the old life, and there's no power in our lives from the righteousness of Christ, then we're in a self-deceived position. It's the righteousness that the Holy Spirit gives us and the power to overcome sin that testifies within our hearts that we belong to him. Sometimes people come to me and they say, Pastor Nick, I am having such a hard time getting past some certain things in my old life. And sometimes that's the music that they used to listen to. Sometimes it's the entertainment and the amusement and the DVDs and the things that they gave themselves to. Sometimes it's deeper sin issues of sins of the flesh, things that they're going through. 
And let's say I've done this, I've done this, and I've done this. And no matter what, somehow it's just still got this hold and I can't get free of it. And sometimes I'll listen to that and I'll say, listen, you know what? You should be glad. Because what you're telling me right now is evidence to me that you truly are saved, that you're born again. And here's why. Because dead men don't wrestle. And the fact that you're even fighting and struggling over this and that you want victory and freedom in your life is an evident sign that the Spirit of God is in you and that he's working this out within your life. If you didn't care and you suppressed it and just sought to bury it, then I would worry on your behalf. Keep fighting. God's going to bring you the victory because the righteousness of Christ is greater than the power of that sin that had a hold on you. He that says he abides in him, verse 6, ought himself also so to walk even as he walked. Now, I like the fact that he uses the word walk there and not exist. Because if he used the word exist, it would change things drastically, wouldn't it? That he that says he abides in him ought himself so to exist even as he existed. Now that's unattainable, isn't it? But if we're walking with him, then that means we're going somewhere. We're progressing in our journey and, in, and towards our destiny. And so as we walk with him, we're sinning less. Do you understand? It's not that we're sinless, but we should be sinning less. And so God is revealing. I, I've shared this with you before, but one of the first things my wife, who was then just my friend, told me when I got saved two years after her, she said, understand that sin is like an onion. You're going to see the outside layer. And the outside layer is always going to be glaring at you with its scent and its, its presence. And eventually God's going to help you and you'll peel away that layer only to expose another layer. And that will glare and stink until you pierce through that layer. And guess what? There's going to be another layer. And I thought, really? You mean once I get past booze and cursing and, you know, that, that I'm not there, I'm not done? And she's like, you'll see, you know. <laughs> She was right. It goes deep. You realize that the sin nature goes deep. The things like the pride and our attitudes and the affections that we didn't know we have or the things that crop up later in life as we mature and develop. God is constantly wrestling those things out. And we should be continually peeling off layers of the onion. And if we are, then we're abiding in him. If we're not, then we need to ask ourselves the question, am I self-deceived? Brethren, he says, I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment which you had from the beginning. The old commandment, listen, is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Now, this sounds a lot like John chapter 1, verse 1, doesn't it? John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. The word of God was eternally pre-existent before God ever spoke anything into existence at all. From Genesis to Revelation, the whole word of God already existed before one word of it was written down. It existed in the person of Christ. And therefore, the standard of God and of his righteousness and of his truth has always been. It doesn't change. It doesn't evolve. It doesn't shift with culture and with tide and with time. It's an old commandment. The word of God stands. It is what it is. It's an old command. The standard never changes. 
But then John goes on to say in verse 8, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. You say, well, what gives? He says, there's no new command. It was old. But now he says, a new command I give to you. Here's what's new. Not the standard and not the commandment. That stays the same. But here's what's different is that wherein in times past, that is in the old covenant, the standard of God and the word of God was an external force. It was outside of us. We read it. We understood it. We tried to do it. And we met with failure every time. But in the new covenant... No longer is the word of God something that's an external force that we try to conform our lives to, but now it's an internal presence. He says this thing is true in you, in him and in you, because the darkness is past and the true light now shines. Here's the glory of what John's saying. He's saying that because the Holy Spirit of God lives in you, you now have power to live out the life that in the old covenant they could never meet the standard of. God gives you power in the new covenant to live this thing. Therefore, verse 9, he that says he is in the light but hates his brother is in darkness even until now. Is that if there's anyone that you have ought with, if you can say right now that there's a person that you hate, then you need to seriously question where you're at with the Lord. To think about again those stories that Jesus told about the man who was indebted and was forgiven of his debt, but then held someone else accountable for the debt they owed him. Listen, it's imperative in this new covenant life that we be lovers of people even as God has been lovers of us. We must not hold on to bitterness. If there's hatred in our heart towards anyone, then we are in darkness. That's the sixth time that John says, he that says. And so if we say that we're in the light, but if we hate a human being, and the Bible says that we are in darkness until now. But he that loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and knows not where he goes because that darkness has blinded his eyes. They have no direction for their life. They have no fellowship with God. Hatred is an extremely powerful force. And it's an evident token in our lives that we are not in a right standing and in a right place with God. Now, in verse 12, John goes completely ADD. And, and, and you know, as I read this, I'm, going to my, I'm thinking, I'm picturing in my mind someone who's doing text-to-speech with their device. You ever do that? Text-to-speech? And as you go text-to-speech, you're talking, and then you stop talking... And you have the radio playing in the background, and it picks up what the radio is saying, and it puts that in your text. I think that's what happened here. I think John was listening to Christian radio. <laughs> he was saying things. He paused for a minute to think. His device picked up the song that was playing in the background, and John goes, you know what? I'm going to leave it there. It kind of fits. <laughs> you know. Notice what he says in verse 12. He says, I write unto you, little children, because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. I write unto you, little children, because you have known the Father. I have written unto you, fathers, 
because you have known him that is from the beginning. And I have written unto you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the wicked one. And so John basically here gives them this song that most believe was a hymn or some kind of a song that they sang in the early church. And there are phrases in there concerning three different groups of Christians. Number one, John calls them little children. Number two, he calls them young men. And then number three, he calls them fathers. Now, what this song reveals to us as we just take it from the bird's eye perspective is that there are stages of growth and development in the Christian life as we grow in our relationship with the Lord. To, uh, it also tells us that there are milestones, that there are things in certain stages of our Christian experience that we're supposed to come to a realization or come to an attainment of. Ebenezer stones, the Bible will call them. And, and so he tells us what they are. He says, for little children... The desire of God for little children in the faith is that they would know the forgiveness of God. I write unto you little children because your sins have been forgiven you. And so it's God's desire that early on in our Christian walk and in our Christian faith that we come to a realization of the forgiveness of our sins. That we're free from the condemnation of sins of the past. And that we're secure in the grace of God. That we're no longer feeling the weight of the guilt of our sins, but we see that fall off. That's the milestone of a, little child, of a little child to come to that place. Hey, my sins are forgiven. The attainment of a young man or young, younger, um, de- more developed younger men and women in the faith is that three things. Number one is that they overcome the wicked one, is that they begin to experience victory over sin in their lives. They meet milestones of righteousness. The second thing for them is that they become spiritually strong and that also they become rooted and grounded in the word of God. That they're they're built up in the word, that they know the truth of God. And then ultimately, as they do that, they come into the third stage that John brings up here, and that is fatherhood. And to the fathers, he simply says one thing. He says, I've written unto you because you have known him that is from the beginning. Listen, church, the ultimate destination that God has in mind for us in our growth and sanctification is that we would know God, that our relationship with him would be strong, that it would be deep, and that it would be the most important thing in our lives, the supreme passion or thing that drives us in our lives. And in order for us to get to that place, our sins must be forgiven. We must overcome the wicked one. We must be rooted and grounded in the word of God. And we must become spiritually strong. And as we do that, we will come to the place where we can say with Paul that I might know him and the fellowship of his suffering and the power of his resurrection. And I am willing to count every other thing in my life to be as rubbish that I might come into that relationship with him. And that is ultimately what God has destined us for. It's what he's designed us for. It's what he has willed for our lives. We're going to pause there tonight in our study. The musicians can come uh, as we we get ready to close our service. We'll pick up next week with um, verse 15, the very, very important verses 
as we um, continue on in First John. Um, but what have we heard tonight as we just close and prepare our hearts uh, to worship the Lord? What we've, we've heard is, is, first of all, the proper means of dealing with our sins. What's the proper means of dealing with our sins? That is that we are to confess our sins unto God and turn from them and experience his forgiveness in them with the full confidence that Jesus Christ has paid the penalty for those sins. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 20, I think it's chapter 26, verse 13, it says that whoever seeks to cover his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. And so the Bible teaches us, and we hear from the Spirit of God tonight, that if there's any area of our life that as we're sitting here listening to this Bible study tonight, and God the Holy Spirit brings something to your attention, and that's all you can hear in your mind, or all you can feel is the weight of that guilt, of that sin, then the Bible says that the means of dealing with that is to bring it to the Father and to confess before Him, Father, I have sinned against you, or I'm in sin, or this sin has a hold of my life. And when we do that, the Bible says that he immediately forgives and begins to break the power of that sin within our lives so that its control over us is broken, our blindness to our condition is broken, our heart can continue or begin to soften again so that we can sense his conviction and care about people in our lives. All of those things immediately happen at the moment that we confess our sins. We've also learned tonight that the truest evidence of a person's salvation, the fact that they're saved, is the presence of the new nature inside of them that drives that person towards righteousness. And I ask you tonight, is that true in your life? Are you a person that lives the Christian life always hoping to get away with something? Always looking to see, what is it that I can get away with? What is it that, 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 that God will you know, wink at or, or that I can still be saved and go this far? Is that the mentality? Because that's an evidence that there's, there's something not right. There's something not right. Or are you a person that says, God, I want to live the life that you've intended for me to live. And I want Jesus to be my role model. And I want to be free of as many layers of this cursed onion that I can get rid of on this side of eternity. And I want to know you in the fullest way that I can. And I want to be an overcomer. And I want to live this life, Lord, to its fullest. Now, what's the drive and the desire of your heart if you ask God in the quietness of it all? He says the truest evidence that we belong to him is that we have a desire to yield to the new nature. And we've also learned tonight, finally, that we are called and we are destined to grow into spiritual maturity. Is that we shouldn't remain in a little children position where we're constantly just battling with the sins of the flesh and am I saved and am I free? No, no, no. We should get past that. That's the milestone of a little child in the faith. And that we should move into the stage of being young men and women in the faith. And you could be 80 years old and be a young woman or man in the faith. You could also be 15 years old and be a father in the faith. Or maybe 20. But we're called to be growing. There should be overcoming happening in our lives. We shouldn't be battling the same things year after year after year after year. And above all of that, can I ask you this tonight? Do you know him? Do you really know him? Can you look at someone and say, hey, I know him. I know God. 
There's a relationship. I know his presence. I know what it means to commune with him and to sit with him. I know what it means to hear his voice. I know what it means to sit with my Bible and to have it talk to me. Yes, talk to me. I know what it means to bring something to God and to leave his presence changed from when I went into it. I know his voice and I'm growing in that depth. And can I tell you, there is no greater thing than to know God. Can you say that here tonight? Because even if you're a little child, there should be something in you, according to John, that we can say that we know him. We're called to be growing. As we close out tonight in song, perhaps there's something. John's words, they've exposed an area of self-deception. The altar's open to come and just say, God, I confess. Or God, I repent. Or God, my heart has become hard. Or God, there's hatred in me towards this person. And Lord, I'm afraid that I might waste years. Or that I might just stand before you one day and that you might look at me and say, I never knew you. People gamble way too much with their eternal life. I would encourage you, do business with God. No one's going to bother you if you come forward and spend your moment and return to your seat. But let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you tonight as we Consider these things and we ask you, Lord, that you, by the grace of God and in the person of your Holy Spirit, that you would bring us into the full light of your truth. We thank you, Lord, for speaking. We thank you, Lord, for what you've done here, what you're doing. And we pray that you would continue. We give thanks. We honor you, Lord. We love you. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.